KUT always puts you first, even during a public health crisis. The highest priority is to deliver accurate information to you and to this community. And it's listener support that makes this critical work possible. Give today at KUT.org. And thanks. It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate? For two pizzas for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. One of the main takeaways is just to be a little bit weary. The new hot superfood that's not only healthy and gluten-free and, uh, you know, it's also solving poverty and hunger all over the world. And, you know, I think to be really weary of those kinds of claims. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. We won't tell you what to eat, but we can tell you why you're eating it. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. And I'm Tom Philpott, food and agriculture writer for Mother Jones Magazine. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. And today's secret ingredient is quinoa. So if you'd like to know how to cook and prepare the most delicious, high-protein, sustainably traded cereal from the Altiplano, you're listening to the wrong show. Uh, We are here to talk about uh, the kinds of things that hide behind the ingredients that you're curious about. Uh, So if you want recipes, uh, we'll probably have a link uh, on our podcast page to some other show uh, that will will indulge you. But for right now, we're going to talk to Tanya Kirsten, uh, who is a researcher, an activist and author. She's the research coordinator at the Institute for Food and Development policy, also known as Food First, and she's the author of Grabbing Power, The New Struggles for Land, Food and Democracy in Northern Honduras, uh, which came out of her solidarity work with Honduran popular movements in the 2009 coup. But we're talking to her today about her work on quinoa, uh, and you can find more on her 2013 Common Dreams article on our website. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So let, let, let's dive right in, Tanya. Why are we talking about quinoa in the first place? I mean, a, a decade ago, it seemed like this stuff was just a, a, a mysterious bean that sat on the aisle somewhere that no one, <laughs> no one ate. And now all of a sudden it's like quinoa this, quinoa that. Whence quinoa? <laughs> uh, well, it's interesting. I'm actually, um, I was sort of surprised to be invited today to talk about quinoa because I, I had kind of assumed that no one really cared anymore. <laughs> there was kind of a, you know, a, a boom, I guess, in 2003. The, the same sort of boom uh, that we talk about in terms of the production of quinoa. There's sort of a boom in media uh, interest and fascination and curiosity um, in quinoa, um, often termed, you know, the the newest trendy um, superfood um, in, in high demand um, in the global north because of its, you know, high nutritional properties, um, you know, high levels of uh, protein and calcium and iron and, uh, and fiber and also um, as a uh, gluten-free food that's um, been very appealing to, you know, folks on a gluten-free diet and also for um, you know, vegetarians and vegans looking for, um, you know, plant-based, uh, plant-based proteins. Um, so, of course, um, you know, when we talk about uh, demand, uh, demand for something, you know, that you've never heard of, is it's not something that happens, you know, magically. <laughs> it's not created by, you know, all of a sudden consumers just... Um, want something uh, totally that was once for, totally foreign to them. Um, so, um, you know, the demand for quinoa is really something that was um, created and pushed for um, primarily by farmers um, in the Andean region who um, were growing quinoa primarily for subsistence and um, were able to um, make connections, make connections with companies, um, you know, sort of social justice-oriented type of companies um, in the U.S. and Europe who were interested in helping poor farmers um, and, uh, and sort of mobilize those kind of alternative food markets um, in order to create a, like a better livelihood um, for themselves. Um, and so what, you know, what began as kind of a niche uh, health food uh, primarily consumed by you know hippies <laughs> in the U.S. in the in the 80s, um, 
you know, grew in popularity as more and more, you know, people found out about it and were interested in, you know, sort of exotic um, and uh, healthy foods. Can you talk through for a second, Tanya, the sort of way that quinoa developed in, in, the, in the Andean region, the way that it sort of the original agricultural system that you've written about so fascinatingly and how, how, it, how it developed in the, in the sort of highlands area in relation to other kinds of agriculture going on um, in the lowlands? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think what's so amazing about the Andes, um, it's, it's such a complex, uh, such a patchwork of complex ecosystems um, and agroecosystems and cultures. Um, and uh, quinoa really developed um, in one of the most, uh, you know, we'll say remote, although that's a, a relative term, but <laughs> remote, um, pretty inhospitable um, parts um, of the Andes where, you know, people will, will often say, right, nothing else grows um, but quinoa <laughs> in terms of um, in terms of agricultural products in the southern altiplano. Um, so um, this is a region that um, you know historically was primarily a pastoral region, um, meaning um, you know herding of animals, um, llamas historically huge caravans of of llamas. You know before the Spanish conquest, you had caravans of you know, 10, if you can imagine 10,000 or 20,000 llamas <laughs> moving through wow. the, the Altiplano. Um, and quinoa um, developed as sedentary agriculture developed um, as a very, um, you know, as a crop that was very adapted to uh, a very dry region with very little rainfall, um, very saline sandy, um, volcanic soils um, in a region that, you know, after the Spanish conquest um, was pr- pretty much ignored, um, you know, except for some, some mining, um, but pretty much ignored by the, by the Spanish, by the colonizers, um, <clears throat> because it wasn't, it, it wasn't fit for growing any of the crops that the, the Spaniards liked to consume. You couldn't grow wheat there. You couldn't grow barley there. Um, you know, you couldn't even grow, you know, potatoes there. Um, so it's, you know, a very, very hardy crop, um, that's highly nutritious and really, um, you know, a a pillar, uh, of food security and in the Southern Altiplano. And there was a sim- uh, the beginning of agriculture, right? And there was a symbiosis between llama farm, you know, llama sort of herding and quinoa, wasn't there? Yeah, they really, they really go um, completely hand in hand. Um, you know, especially in the uh, quinoa is grown in in many in many different regions, and um, you know, it's it's grown on the the coast of South America. It's grown in sort of subtropical montane. Regions. It's grown around Lake Titicaca, which is um, thought to be the center of origin um, of quinoa. Um, but the reason I <clears throat> talk so much about the southern altiplano um, of uh, of Bolivia is because um, this has really been the heart of the recent quinoa boom, and where the the one very prized variety of quinoa. Um, is grown. It's known as royal quinoa um, or or quinoa real. Um, so uh, yes, and in this region, llamas and quinoa have always, really, always gone together since the domestication of quinoa as a as a food crop in this in, in the southern Altiplano region. With uh, pastoralism being the main activity, people mostly focusing on um, you know raising llama herds for for food food and uh, and fiber um and you know exchanging uh, llama meat and fiber with you know people from other parts of the andes for fruits and vegetables and fish and things like that um and then growing quinoa only on very very small um hillside plots the size of which was determined primarily by how much you know each um family uh, of the community needed 
um, for its subsistence. You know, so if you had a big family, you would you would grow more quinoa. If you had a small family, you would grow less. <clears throat> and um, and uh, the historically the quinoa plots have been on the uh, on the hillsides, <clears throat> on very labor intensive um, terraces. And um, the llamas really dominating the 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 plains, the flat areas, um, and the of course the um, you know llama uh, you know manure was used to then um, fertilize the the small quinoa plots, which was you know very important considering there's um the soils are lacking in, you know, they're not very fertile soils, so they really depend on that, you know, reintroduction of, of organic matter. Right. So, Tanya, one more one more question for me. So um, you had this, this system of sort of integrated agriculture, llamas and quinoa, that went along more or less interrupted by colonialization, by in the post-colonial era. And then, am I understanding correctly that in the 70s and 80s, and maybe even a little before that, you start getting out-migration from the area, right, based on new policies, sort of neoliberal policies that were coming down the pike. Yeah, I mean, um, I think migration, it's a very difficult thing. I mean, probably anywhere, but especially in the Andes, to pin down because populations have always been extremely mobile, um, and you know, dual, triple residency um, is something that's uh, you know part of the you know way of life for most people. Um, and so, um, and and there have been multiple sort of important um, moments of uh, of changes in, in migratory patterns in Bolivia. So, you know, one of them was after the 1950s revolution, social revolution, where people were, you know, basically no longer slaves and didn't have to be slaves on, on haciendas and, and in mines and could go wherever they wanted. So you had a huge transformation, people, you know, moving to the city, um, especially. Um, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, um, I think you have another important uh, shift in, in, my, in migration that comes from, um, you know, a, the a big, you know, El Nino drought in 1982-1983. Um, there was also the, you know, privatization of the, of the mines, um, of the mines in 1985, um, in which a lot of folks left. Um, you know, left the mine, like 50,000 miners, I think, were laid off with the privatization of the state-owned mines in 1985, and many of them, um, you know, went went back to agriculture, um, and where, you know, as I said, with the patterns of double, triple residency, many of them still had their land, even though they had been engaged in mining for a long time, and so they were able to go back to their land um, in you know quinoa growing communities and go back to growing quinoa um, you know as a sort of safety net for them um, and, and many many other miners also moved into the tropical areas to plant um, coca hmm. um, and uh, you know so it, in a way there's sort of an interesting kind of parallel there I don't want to put too fine a point on it you know but coca and quinoa is like two of these crops that didn't um, suffer the dramatic erosion of um, farm gate prices in the neoliberal era that other crops did, you know, so you just couldn't, you know, grow potatoes and survive. Um, but you could grow coca and you could grow uh, increasingly, you know, you could grow quinoa. Right. Because other crops like wheat and things like that were suddenly subjected to foreign competition, driving down prices, but there was no real competition for quinoa or limited competition for coca. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, you know, that was, I guess, sort of Bolivia's um, comparative advantage, right? Yeah. <laughs> Agriculturally speaking. Um, you know, the, the, the wheat, the, the domestic wheat production was really decimated um, decades before with huge um, dumping of, of U.S. 
you know, subsidized U.S. wheat in the form of food aid. And um, Bolivia was the first, actually the first recipient of um, PL-480 um, food aid shipments um, right after its revolution. So you can see sort of what the political kind of um, geopolitical motivation um, might have been there. But then, yeah, in the in the 80s and 90s, um, Bolivia also joined sort of some like regional agreements, especially the Andean Community of Nations. And as like the weakest uh, partner in those agreements, um, really, you know, suffered and began to see a lot of cheap imports from neighboring countries, um, so, you know, potatoes and onions and carrots and, you know, things that peasants were producing um, were coming in cheaper from from Peru, from Chile, from Argentina. So around this time, you get um, farmers in this, in this region that we're talking about here organizing to find foreign markets for quinoa, and it's through these alternative trade networks like fair trade, is that right? Uh, yes. Yep. This is how, this is how it really begins, um, sort of the, the beginnings of fair trade and the beginnings of, um, you know, of, of quinoa exports, um, kind of go, go hand in hand. Wow. Um, I'm not sure if we want to go this far ahead, but I, I, I'm really curious about, you, you said that you were surprised because you didn't think a lot of people were going to be interested in this topic anymore. And I was wondering, was there some like backlash to this mass production of quinoa and distribution in the United States and people cared for a while and now they don't? And what, what, (laughs) can you kind of set the scene for us a little bit on the, on that front? Sure. Well, you know, I think it was, um, let me think, like 2011, 2012, um, when some, uh, you know, uh, you know, not to, to, to beat up on reporters, but I think sometimes <laughs> <laughs> one reporter will do a story and then, you know, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, 50 stories come out on the same thing. Um, and so there was one um, New York Times article um, in particular that came out, and um, you know, and it, it, I have some friends who worked on this piece as as fixers and stuff, and they feel really uh, like they've been unfairly blamed for some of the um, wrong assumptions that were <laughs> that were highlighted in this article, um, but. Um, you know, a lot of the assumptions made in this sort of first article of like looking at what the impacts are of you know quinoa expansion in, in Bolivia um, were then reproduced um, a number of times in a lot of other articles. And you know, one of the main assumptions and one that a lot of consumers in the U.S. and in Europe picked up on um, is that you know, okay, quinoa has gotten so expensive that the farmers who produce quinoa can no longer afford to eat it, um, which you know, understandably, it's like a very, com- it's a very compelling, uh, you know, sort of heartbreaking situation if that's the case. Um, but it seemed to be based on um, some, I think, mistaken kind of interpretation of data. So, for example, you know, if you ask a farmer you know, what percentage of your harvest did did you used to keep for your own subsistence before, like 10 years ago, and what percentage do you keep now? You know, and that may have decreased from 50% to, you know, 5%. Um, but, of course, if you used to grow a quarter acre of quinoa and now you grow, you know, 30 um that would affect (laughs) the percentage that you hold on to for subsistence. So, um, but that is, that is one, you know, I think there are a lot of negative impacts in terms of, you know, which we can get get into consumption in terms of, uh, you know, ecological impacts. Um, But that one has been a particularly persistent, um, I think, myth is that the quinoa farmers can't afford to eat quinoa. Um, and that's one I'm, I'm always, always asked about just repeatedly. Um, 
And uh, it's also one that really irritates people in Bolivia. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not really true then? Well, it's not really true, but of course, you know, I'm always accused of using the word complex too much, but <laughs> uh, the reality is very complex. Um, you know, because if you're a quinoa farmer um, and you've seen your, your income go up dramatically, you know, one thing you're able to do is, um, you know, if you were eating a pretty monotonous diet of quinoa every day before, now you're able to eat other kinds of things. Right. You know, and for, that can be for better or worse, of course. And, you know, I think the quinoa defenders all always say, oh, well, now they can eat more fruits and vegetables, which is true. But, you know, of course, they can also eat, you know, refined wheat products and junk food. And their kids are asking for junk food, you know, and pressuring them to buy them candy bars and sugared yogurts and things like that. So um, there's that, that on the one hand. Um, but I think there's also another sort of, myth that goes along with this about quinoa and the quinoa boom, which is that that quinoa farmers are this sort of homogeneous blob that all do the same thing and respond to, you know, experience reality the same way, um, which is, of course, not true because, you know, some uh, quinoa farmers um, really, really, uh, under, you know, they really value quinoa as part of their indigenous traditions and really recognize um, its, you know, its nutritional and cultural value, you know, as part of their food sovereignty and cultural sovereignty. Um, but then there are other farmers and especially sort of more like newcomers to, to quinoa farming um, who got into the game somewhat more recently and were a little bit more disconnected from their indigenous identity and probably have more urbanized and westernized diets um, who don't eat quinoa as much, you know, or at all. Right. But so, uh, uh, Tanya, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why people think um, – you know, there's this tragedy in in Bolivia about well, you know, us, us hippies in Germany or wherever it is, uh, demanding quinoa is, is causing suffering in the uh, you know, in the benighted countries of uh, of Latin America. <clears throat> Excuse me, is because there's the idea that, that this was the one crop that was virtuous that did come through these fair trade networks and therefore mm. was sort of immune from the kinds of marketing pressures that you know that, that, that obtained for. The, the wheat products and the processed food that you're you're talking about there, right. um, but and I also think that there's a, in the back of people's minds there is this model of the quinoa farmer as someone who's kind of like a small scale American wheat farmer where you you go out and you have quinoa fields and they you know they 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 strafe the fields with their hands and they they caress the quinoa as, as it as it germinates and there's only quinoa in the field and there's only one harvest a year and that that sort of assumption uh, as as you say is 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 wrong I mean that there, there are these you know, the, the the integrations with large but there's also the the quinoa that grows as uh, uh, intercropped with other things, and there's the quinoa that forms part of systems that not that are not about the commodity markets, but they're about something called IU. And I, I yeah. wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, because it seems like that assumption about what it is that you're growing the food for and the conditions under which you're growing it is a far more difficult and intractable assumption to pluck from people's heads. Right, right. Um, yeah, I think that. Um the IU is, I'm trying to think what I want to say first. Um, just one quick comment before going into the IU um, about consumption is um, that um, I think it's, it is important to recognize, you know, who, who has not had access um, to quinoa, and that's been, you know, the rural and urban poor who are not quinoa producers. Um, you know, and, and a lot of people inside and outside Bolivia have talked about, you know, how the high price of quinoa has actually been a barrier. And even though actually quinoa consumption in Bolivia has increased, um, it, it appears that this is not a result of my research, but sort of what I su suspect is that it's increased primarily among uh, more affluent sectors. Um, uh, and yeah, um, so in terms of the the IU, um, so yes, the IU is an you know is a an indigenous um, 
uh, indigenous community um, that um, has remained primarily intact, I think closest to what it was before the conquest in the southern Altiplano. Um, and again, the reason for that is that the Spaniards didn't really want to totally colonize that area because it had not, it didn't have much to offer. Um, and so um, the the indigenous communities um, really maintained, um, you know, their their tradition of of rotating leadership of, you know, rotating indigenous authorities, which were um, typically both a man and a woman together, um, who, um, who assigned, you know, as I said before, like different, you know, different families within the indigenous community would farm a, an amount of land based on, you know, based on their needs. And this was allocated by the indigenous authority um, who also regulated the system of, of crop rotation, which in this area is known as mantos, um, which, um, you know, I think, you know, most of the listeners probably understand crop rotation. You know, you, you move your, your field around so that you, you're not depleting um, soil fertility in, in, a particular, uh, in a particular piece of land. Um, and this, you know, I think it's important for us. We tend to think of sustainability as something that's primarily technical, um, but I think it's important to recognize that, you know, sustainability is very tight, intimately connected to the social and, and cultural forms, um, so such as the, the Andean IU and the the role of the traditional indigenous authorities in um, in regulating in regulating production, um, and this is something with the the commercialization of quinoa in this region. Um, that's well, and also with without migration, right? It's difficult to sustain cultural traditions when there are no people, uh, and this is one of the big tensions <laughs> in this area. Um, you know, we congratulate quinoa for bringing bringing people back to the region, but then it's, you know, bringing people back under what rationality. And typically uh, folks who are coming back to the area have more of a sort of entrepreneurial, commercial uh, rationality motivated more by the profit motive um, than, uh, than the folks who, you know, remained in the area and continued um, you know, recognizing, respecting traditional practices and authorities um, uh, over time. And so, you know, this dichotomy doesn't always hold 100% of the time, but I think, you know, what I've seen um, in talking to people is that, you know, the folks who have stayed, who have been living long-term in these territories, um, have a different, a more intimate relationship with the land, Um uh, you know, understandably, and with this the idea of what it can sustainably produce and and why, um, you know, as in for profit or or for you know sustaining your family and culture, um, as opposed to, you know, some of the folks who saw prices increasing and and decided to go back and grow quinoa and expand quinoa um, primarily for for profit. Um, and that's you know, and so there've been there've been a lot of of tensions, you know, I think between these two rationalities. And you also have folks coming in from the city who went to school, maybe in college, maybe even, and were able to work in some government posts. They speak Spanish, you know, and they don't necessarily, when they go back to their home communities, they don't necessarily respect. The, the elders, and you know, this is something we <laughs> can relate to in the U.S., right? They, they're educated; they don't really respect the traditional knowledge of their elders, um, or you know, follow their um, the traditional norms about land use. Um, Tanya, you know, this this scenario that you're setting up, it I keep thinking to the way that oil production is done on the coast in Texas. And you have a lot of guys kind of leaving their home, going down to work in the refineries and then going back. And the the um, living conditions down there are 
horrendous. And I was wondering if you could just kind of like set up a little bit about what the living conditions are like, like what is the culture like? And uh, are the people who are working in the fields taking bringing their families down? Are they shifting the way that the economy is set up there? Or are they leaving and they're, they're working for a season and then going back? Yeah. Um, yeah, this is one thing that um, is very dark if you if you go to this region um it's funny i live in la paz in the capital la paz and um i'll often get people saying i'm like a a reporter or a phd student i'm coming through la paz can you tell me where i can visit some quinoa farms around there Mm -hmm. you know to sort of study the quinoa boom like well you have about a 15 hour journey ahead of you (laughs) (laughs) actually um but if you do, you know, make it out there, um, you know, one thing, if you're imagining that the quinoa boom has brought all sorts of prosperity and, you know, and and roads and schools and, you know, what have you, then you're sorely disappointed because, first of all, you know, you need to rent a Land Rover to, to get there because um, there are really no, very few um, paved roads. Um, and then what you see is... Um, a, a, what looks like just ghost towns, you know, sort of completely broken down, what looked totally abandoned, like adobe uh, houses. Um, and, I mean, I think there there are some, some new things, but um, what, what people have, there's been a, a sort of an extractive, I think, mentality of a lot of, folks that you know you go there you grow the quinoa you sell it and then you take the wealth somewhere else you invest it maybe in your you know some other entrepreneur urban entrepreneurial activity um or you know it's not necessarily reinvested in the community um but uh you know with that said i think that the the communities the farmers you know recognize in these areas that this is happening, that it's a problem. And, um, you know, what I write about in the, in the article you had mentioned earlier is um, how, how they're trying to combat this. And it's obviously very difficult, um, but, you know, they're coming together, um, you know, for community assemblies, and they're beginning to require that uh, anyone who farms, not just someone who lives in the area, has to attend these assemblies, um, and that they have to uh, abide by you know certain norms that are established by the community. So one of them, um, and they're different, you know, in different. You know, I use I'm sort of using the word IU and the word community interchangeably here, but. Um, you know, so one of the norms might be that you're required to have a residence in the community. You have to have a house. <laughs> it like, seems really basic, but there are a lot of folks who are just coming down and sleeping in the back of their pickup truck um, for the, you know, the the planting and the and the harvesting. Really, just you know, coming down a couple times a year, or not coming down at all and just making a, fo- a phone call, you know, on your cell phone from La Paz with some of the people who live there and saying, you know, I'll pay you this much to harvest my quinoa. Um, and, um, you know, so trying to deal with the this um, dynamic of absenteeism and, um, and extractivism um, so that you can see some tangible <laughs> effects of the quinoa boom in terms of improving quality of life in the area. So I think we should explain that during the out-migration period, a lot of people moved out um, into the cities of, mm-hmm. uh, of Bolivia, but retained ancestral land, like uh, sort of kind of vaguely defined rights to ancestral land. Mm-hmm. And then when the quinoa boom happened, they, you know, as part of this sort of proffered opportunity, moved, moved back in, in fairly significant numbers. Is that, is that correct? Or not yeah, move back, yeah. but sort of reclaimed the land to plant quinoa and then didn't necessarily live in the area. But descendants yeah, exactly. of in- indigenous farmers that are now pretty citified. 
So yeah, this is it's pretty fascinating aspect of this whole thing, I think. Um because you know, I think you know, people have asked me for instance if there's, you know, if if what's happening in this area is like a land grab. Um and you know, obviously that sort of depends on how you define <laughs> how you define land grabbing, but certainly not in the conventional sense because um you can't access land in this region unless you are indigenous and have membership ties to a particular indigenous community um, and uh, but you know that's <laughs> so on, on the one hand you know there's not like a bunch of you know Brazilians or something coming in and, and grabbing up land in the southern altiplano for quinoa um, like they're doing with soy <laughs> in right, the right. lands of Bolivia um, but, you know, on the other hand, yeah, you have folks who um, do have a, a, a link, you know, to a, an indigenous community. But it may not even be, you know, they m- may have been born in the city and never even set foot in it, you know, maybe a, from a previous generation. Right. Um, and they may not even, you know, speak Aymara or Quechua and the indigenous languages. Um and they may not have any idea where where the land was that their you know parents or grandparents um, you know used to farm um, several generations ago. So um, obviously that causes a lot of uh, confusion and you know mistrust and tensions and you know arguments. You know there are even things intrafamiliar issues where you know one brother you know, left for the city for, you know, 30 years and one stayed. <laughs> and then the, the you know, urban brother wants to come back and, you know, cl- take claim half the land um, that's been farmed, you know, by the other sibling with a, through a lot of hardships probably for many years. Um, and typically what will be done is that by the community and the family is that that, you know, that, sibling who had left uh, claim on that land will be recognized and they will get, you know, uh, half of that land, you know, to, to be able to farm. Um, but yeah, <laughs> it, it's very complicated. Um, you know, I'm wondering, like, where do you see um, the problems, the main problems surrounding quinoa now in the U.S.? I mean, it's funny because you, so you spend time, you're in Minnesota now, and then you also go back to Bolivia. And when you come back to the States, you go to a, a regular grocery store, you know, what is like, you just shake your head, like, seriously, people? Like, are, <laughs> this is where we're at right now? Or kind of how do you, uh, uh, how do you negotiate the, um, what's going on in, in the world of quinoa now? Well, it's interesting because all all of this stuff I'm talking about, talking with you about now, um, is from my my field work, my research that I did in, in 2012, 2013 primarily, really at the height of the, you know, of the quinoa boom. And so, you know, just before this uh, this conversation, I was busy, like, looking at some articles about, like, what's happened in the last uh, two years because a lot has changed. Um, you know, mostly, you know, what it was totally predictable, we all knew what happened is that the boom has gone bust. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, because, um, you know, in part because I think there's sort of a plateauing of, uh, consumer demand and, you know, you're hearing all sorts of like, you know, what's the new trendy superfood like, which I gather is now Tef from East Africa. Oh boy. <laughs> Tef is, is the new quinoa. I've seen that headline a bunch of times. Uh, so, uh, but also because um, there are now, I think I read 68 quinoa producing countries. Right. Um, and so the and and I you know which to varying degrees I think some of those are not at large scale commercial production sort of still the trial stage. Um, but you know Peru, which is a more um, industrialized a more economically advanced country has really ramped up um, production and surpassed Bolivia in the last couple of years as the largest um, uh, quinoa exporter. Hmm. Um, and so, 
and all of those factors have led to a, a pretty dramatic um, collapse of farm gate prices for quinoa. So um, we're talking about how much, like 50%, um, uh, more than that? Yeah, more than that. Wow. Um, so that, let's see, they're le- so compa- so right now compared to the, the, the peak of quinoa prices in like 2013, 2014, um, it's less than a third. Wow. So um, 300, so at its peak was roughly $315 per quintal, which is 100 pounds, so $315, um, and it's now $85. Wow. And so um, I, I would assume that still close to 100% of quinoa production in the global market is from those countries in um in that region, right? The the Andean countries. There still yeah, isn't significant U.S. production. I mean, they're trying it out in a couple of places, but there still isn't significant production, right? There isn't, no, significant production, but there is significant uh, investment in research and right. variety trials and, and things like that. So, you know, uh, about a year, like two years ago now, um, you know, there was this big research conference at Washington State University, um, quinoa research conference, and, and I went, and there were like um, like five quinoa farmers were brought up through, um, oh, um, Andean Naturals had, had come up with the money to bring, you know, if, otherwise there wouldn't have been any quinoa farmers there from right. Bolivia, but and Andean Naturals came up with the funds to bring them up, you know, and then we visited this, you know, experimental quinoa, uh, we'll say plot, <laughs> and it was something like you know five thousand acres or something, just crazy. And they 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 couldn't wrap their brains around it. Wow. Um, of course, <laughs> just looking out, you know, at these m- massive um, monocultures. Um, when uh, I don't know what the exact average is um, for a quinoa farm in the southern Altiplano, but um, like a large like a large quinoa farm, we're ta- talking about maybe 50 hectares. Right. So, you know, I don't know, like a, less than 150 acres still for like a really pretty large scale. So most of the price drop is driven by ramping up production in Peru. Is that is it, that correct? That's, it, that appears to be the case. And then, you know, the the I mean, uh, of course, the area of production has also dramatically increased um, in Bolivia over the fi- last five years um, between, you know, doubled and, and tripled. Um, and, and um, you know, so that's also contributed um, to the price drop. But, of course, yields are also declining, hmm. well, particularly yeah. in Bolivia where the, the soils are very, uh, you know, the fragile and um, not all there's there's not a lot of effort um, you know there's no real state extension support for this but there's some NGO support for soil conservation but it's pretty minimal so talk us through the way that this boom has has changed the agricultural practices in in this region that we're talking about in the in the Altiplano where you see quinoa moving off the hillsides onto the ground. You see llamas being removed and how that's affected the eco- ecology of, of production. Yeah, I think that this, to me, is the really the most worrisome aspect um, of, the, of the quinoa boom. Um, and... You know what I what I always said was like, well, well, we don't know what's going to happen first, the the market bust or that, you know, the soils become completely inert because in the main quinoa producing departments of Oruro and Potosi, um, you already have levels of seventy to to ninety percent um, desertification. Wow. Um, so, and that's obviously that's not only due to quinoa, but it just goes to show how precarious um, these soils are if they're not properly cared for. Um, so, you know, as you point out, the main uh, this the main factor that trans- transformed production in this area was the introduction of tractors. 
Um, and it's, you know, it, whereas once your production was defined by how much you, uh, what your needs were as a family, um, now your the amount that you produce is based on how many tractors you have. <laughs> wow. Major um, change. Yep, yep. Huge change and um, and access to that uh, capital has come, I think, it seems like from two different places. One, if you, you know, had a, a herd of, of llamas and, and sheep and you were primarily pastoralist, uh, and you, if you had a large herd, you were able to basically sell your animals um, to invest in tractors and expand quinoa. Um, or if you had, uh, if you were working in, you know, mining or some sort of urban uh, commercial activity, then maybe the, the capital came from those other uh, economic sectors, and you were able to to buy a tractor or several. Um, in order to expand production. And, um, you know, what's happened in terms of land tenure is that, um, you know, the, this, these, are, these are not areas where people have, where, where private property exists um, because it's legally their um, uh, communal territories. Um, so, but there's been kind of a de facto sort of privatization, um, the enclosure of communal lands uh, due to the transfer, the, you know, transformation from a mainly communal uh, land use of herding to a more private land use of agriculture, if that makes sense, you know. So basically you're able to expand into this kind of you know, Wild West, you know, agricultural frontier of communal grazing lands if you had the tractors to do it. Right. And one thing that happens in, in, in markets like this that are based on global price fluctuations and overproduction and things like that is that um, in uh, maybe in a normal market, when the price drops, then people say, well, there's less, you know, less demand for quinoa. I'm going to grow less of it. But in agriculture commodity markets, oftentimes a price drop will be a signal to farmers to produce more in an attempt to make up on volume with a losing on, on price. And when everyone does the same thing, you get into this spiral of sort of downward spiral. Is that happening there in, in quinoa country? Are people saying prices are low, so I, I better intensify production? Or are they pulling back? Yeah, uh, so uh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's also something, you know, that's more, um, it's a very, uh, it's a capitalist assumption, right, that that uh, farmers will grow less if the if the price goes down. But what, what peasants can often do is just exploit themselves even harder <laughs> just to, to, grow, to grow more. Um, because I haven't been watching it very closely in the last year and with the really recent um, collapse in prices in the last six months, um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what's going on right now. Um, I mean, I suspect that to some degree, like, this is a, there's, this is a, a good thing because the people who came in more opportunistically are probably not going to continue doubling down on that. Um, you know, because like mineral prices are high, so you can make a lot from mining. Um, and there's a construction boom, so you can make a lot from working in construction. And, you know, people have a little bit more income under this government, so you can make a lot from selling consumer goods. Um, so I suspect that um, that, that might reduce the pressure a little bit, um, you know, which is always a double-edged sword because, of course, we want farmers to get a good price for their crop. You know, they're still getting triple what a potato farmer gets right? Um, <laughs> growing quinoa, um, you know, but there's also like a greater distance from markets and so transportation costs are higher and um, the processing is much more elaborate. Processing needs for quinoa are much more elaborate. Um, so, um, yeah, it's, 
it's not totally clear, but I mean, I think this is sort of the crux of the issue, right? Is that this thing has mostly just been left up to the the whims of the, of the free market, and um, and there's been really very little, if if any at all, um, you know, attempts on from the, the government to to intervene, to like regulate supply, to say what can we sustainably produce. Um, let's only produce that much and not more. Um, you know, there, there's there's really been none of that. <laughs> and hmm. you know, you can't entirely blame the the Bolivian government, although I think there is a huge lack of p- political will um, to do that because it's po- it's it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to do politically. It's easier to just say, oh, you have good global price, you're happy. <laughs> right. <laughs> just stay out of it. Um, you know, but also Bolivia is a country that was really brutally neoliberalized through structural adjustment policies, and so, you know, state capacity to do a lot of things that we think maybe they should do um, is is fairly fairly limited. So then, Tanya, I mean, we're already, as you say, you, you've seen this headline that TEF is the new quinoa, mm-hmm. and at some point there'll be a new TEF and there will be, right. you know, and we've seen these cycles before. Uh, and I imagine the question that you often get asked then by consumers of quinoa or other exotic cereals is, all right, so what, what do I do? Uh, do I buy this yeah. or do I not buy this? Or, or maybe what I should do is buy llama as well so that we can have a demand for llama and a demand mm-hmm. for quinoa. And, and, and you know, so, so, what, what do you say to someone who comes with that kind of that, that question of, so how do I how do I vote with my fork here? Oh man, I guess I'd probably say it's complicated, <laughs> which is not a satisfying answer. I understand. Um, well, <laughs> I think um, I mean from the. It's interesting because from the quinoa farmers, they what they tell me is they say, "Oh, why don't you tell people in the U.S. to consume more llama products?" You know exactly what you just said. Wow, um, so that <laughs> so that we'll also receive you know get more remuneration for for that activity and you know and they say don't they understand that quinoa and llama go go together you can't have one without the other um, but you know of course I think that's like still a very uh, kind of free market um, you know way to to look at it is just increase demand for llamas and that's also the way that um, you know for instance the World Bank unsurprisingly, is is looking at it. Um, they've just started this year a, a quinoa llama promotion project. <laughs> so what exactly, if you don't mind, would would we be buying? Is it like llama milk or llama... <laughs> what, 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 llama <laughs> meat? Llama... Sweaters? Llama sweaters? Llama purses? <laughs> what, what, what are llamas Ashes. for? How, how, do, we, how well, do we consume llama? Yeah, I mean, one way that I really enjoy consuming llama is as, um, like... Uh, sausage and um, like salami. Like, yeah, yeah. Our, our engineer just said uh, llama tacos. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you if you come, came to La Paz, I would probably take you out to a, a nice restaurant and and suggest that you order the llama steak. Yum! Wow. Um, which is yeah, which is delicious. I think sometimes tastes a little bit slightly gamey, like venison. Um, it's really, you know, it's very low in in cholesterol. Like it's like a much leaner meat than beef, for instance. Um, the way that 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 peasants eat llama is usually as jerky, which actually comes from the Quechua word charqui, <laughs> um, and that's the most common way that llama meats consumed in Bolivia, like dried, salted, cured meats. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think there's certainly the possibility um for for opening you know greater kind of export markets um but i i'm not sure that it really you know gets at the yeah, the root is, is there a non-world the bank sanctioned answer to the to that question <laughs> yes. well I, I think i probably just gave it to you no no, you no, no but, like, but, but but one that, that isn't sanctioned by the world bank i mean is, is is there a i mean is there a response for what can you know what, what people outside uh the production zone of quinoa can do that supports positive change. Is it, I mean, is there oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was trying to sort of circle your question, ah, okay. Um, but okay, I'll just go straight to the point. <laughs> um, I mean, I think one of the uh, 
you know, I think the least satisfying answer, but I think the most important <laughs> answer that I give to people is to, um, you know, recover the diversity and the nutrition uh, in your own local food systems. I mean, that's <laughs> always, I think, the, the most important thing um, that we can do because I think we have what we're seeing is like some real like north-south, um, you know, power dynamics here where we've, you know, we've emptied our own food system of its of its nutrition. <laughs> and then we, you know, because we have the privilege to do that, we can import it from elsewhere. Um, so there's sort of like, to me, a very kind of crass um, <laughs> north-south kind of colonial, neocolonial sort of power dynamic there. Um, but then, of course, you would say, well, you know, through fair trade and all of these things, aren't aren't we, uh, you know, helping uh, quinoa farmers by by creating a market? Um, and there, I guess, I would also say, you know, that the the focus on export markets and programs of the World Bank and other aid agencies and and governments also, the Bolivian government in its agricultural development focuses almost exclusively on export markets without looking at all of the ways in which local markets have been destroyed or undermined and, and could be rebuilt. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of work to be done, I think, everywhere on, like, how do we rebuild our local markets and push for the political will for, you know, the support needed to do that. Um, but then, you know, the more satisfying answer that I can give <laughs> is to look for um, the quinoa brands that support um, uh, producers associations. Um, and so, you know, a couple off the top of my head are Andean Naturals and Alter Eco in the U.S. Um, there, you know, there are many others and there are many others in Europe. Um, but they work uh, explicitly with, um, uh, for instance, ANAPKI, which is the National Association of Quinoa Producers. It's about 2,000 members. The, the largest producer association, um, and they function essentially as a as a cooperative um, to ensure that the benefits are distributed fairly. They also have um, extension programs around, um, you know, uh, biological pest control and soil conservation, um, trying to you know get the best prices for their members. Um, you know, even providing like low or, or no interest. Um, credit for uh, llama production. The Quinoa Association also does that. Um, and, um, you know, the quinoa cooperatives, the producers' cooperatives, have lost a lot of the market share. They used to be, you know, 100% of the market, Anapki. Uh, then, you know, in um, the late 90s, the, the producers' associations were probably had 70% or so control over the quinoa market. And now um, that sort of, or at least as of two years ago, it must, it may be even less now. They had control over 30%, with with 70% controlled by, you know, private private sector, um, you know, private companies who make production contracts with individual farmers. Right. Um, you know, where there's a lot less, uh, you know, solidarity. Um, concern about that that sector is really much more interested and in produce as much as possible like fast and furious before you know to try to fulfill the demand which they've been playing catch up to try to fulfill for the last you know five years so now that there's a new quinoa teff and another new teff coming after that and quinoa demand in the sort of global north is stabilized at a pretty high level i would say compared to you know 15 years ago um is there a possibility where in a place like Bolivia you get a quinoa price that works for farmers in you know in, in a non-boom sense? It's not like dragging people in to buy tractors and invest money and sell sell their herds of llamas, but it's sort of working in a sense where there's profitability. Um, but that is also in reach of consumers in Bolivia. Like I, I, I understand from you that the, the idea that farmers weren't able to afford their own quinoa was way overblown. But there was a sense in which 
urban residents Mm -hmm. in those countries were, um, you know, priced out of the market um, for a lot of people. And, you know, I think we should clarify that before the quinoa boom, there was very little consumption in the cities, right? Because it just didn't make its way um, to the cities so much. Um, But so is there a possibility that, um, you know, going back to your your answer just a second ago about building local markets everywhere, um, could quinoa become a, a staple for urban residents in in the cities of, of the Andes in a way that works for farmers there? Yeah, I am completely hopeful that it could. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, small kind of efforts to, to try to to promote that, and then there's also, um, you know, like there's some groups, like sort of public health groups who are working on um, using quinoa as a way to improve uh, nutrition among the urban poor who are suffering, you know, as they are in many parts of the world. And, you know, Raj has worked on, written about this, called it the, the stuffed and starved phenomena, but there's rising rates of, of obesity and diet-related disease. Um, you know, and, and type 2 diabetes um, in, in Bolivian cities um, and even increasingly in, in rural towns. <clears throat> so there are groups working on, you know, trying to introduce quinoa as, as a, you know, as a, a healthier, healthier option um, and, you know, possibly, you know, the, the decline in, in prices um, helps them to do that. Um, of course, it's it's really easy to put the toothpaste back in the tube of, of dietary change. So, you know, it probably requires some larger scale investment in um, nutrition education and in not subsidizing the foods that are horrible for you. I mean, you know, we talk about the, the subsidies for uh, GMO soy and, and corn in the U.S. And it's like a very similar situation in Bolivia where the the GMO soy growers um, capture all of the subsidies from the state and um, are increasingly, um, you know, penetrating local and domestic markets so that, um, and you can see it when you look at like food subsidy packages where, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, like, well, why doesn't the state just buy quinoa from the farmers and include it in its food subsidies packages, Um, which the state actually does do. But when you look at one of these things, it's like one bag of, like, small bag of quinoa, like a, you know, pound or something, and then you get, for like a month, four bottles of vegetable oil and like three bags of sugar and like another, you know, three bags of flour and rice and, you know, all of the, the agribusiness products. And, um, you know, and often because poor families need money, what they do is they take that, the quinoa and they sell it and they, mm. they monetize it. Um, and then, you know, like, gringas like me who live in La Paz go to the market and buy the <laughs> you know, the informal market and buy their quinoa um, or, you know, affluent, more affluent consumers. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's a difficult, it's a very difficult bind. And I think, you know, it requires some real political will um, because it's not an easy thing to change, to change people's diets, you know, requires a sort of multi-front strategy of, of education and, um, you know, renegotiating trade agreements and, right. uh, you know, providing support for farmers for, uh, you know, sustainable production. Um, so all of those things right now are happening in kind of a, they are happening, but in kind of a disorganized way. So yeah, I'm not. I mean, I, I'm hopeful that it, that it's possible, and a lot of people are advocating for that. You know, I think the main one of the main takeaways is just to be to be a little bit weary. You know, the next, the new hot 
superfoods that's not only healthy and gluten-free and, uh, you know, it's also solving poverty and hunger all over the world. And, you know, I think to be really weary of those kinds of claims, especially as we're constantly seeing these new things come up, you know, and uh, like like TEF or Fonio and SIE and Maca. And, you know, it's really an onslaught um, of superfoods. So, like, just be grounded in, in trying to, to fix your own food system and and looking into how you can be in solidarity with other people trying to do the same all over the world, you know, beyond just buying their coffee or, or buying their product. Well, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. It was great. Thanks, Tanya. Thanks, Tanya. Thank you. Great talking Bye. to you. Bye. Likewise. Bye. Tanya Kirsten is a research coordinator at Food First and author of Grabbing Power, The New Struggles for Land, Food, and Democracy in Northern Honduras. You've been listening to The Secret Ingredient with Raj Patel, Tom Philpot, and me, Rebecca McEnroy. You can find more information and links to Tanya Kirsten's work on our website, thesecretingredient.org. While you're there, check out some of our archive shows where we dig into all kinds of ingredients, like sugar with the late Sydney mints or bananas with Cynthia Enloe. Coming up next time on The Secret Ingredient, we'll talk with anthropologist Ajuna Potterai about food and nationalism, imagination, the future as cultural fact, and so much more. Subscribe to The Secret Ingredient in iTunes to never miss an episode, and leave us a review while you're there. It really helps us out a lot. Finally, you can find details on how you can support this show and all the great programming and podcasts that KUT Radio provides at KUT.org. The Secret Ingredient is engineered by David Alvarez and produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. KUT always puts you first, even during a public health crisis. The highest priority is to deliver accurate information to you and to this community. And it's listener support that makes this critical work possible. Give today at KUT.org. And thanks.